Hello and good morning and welcome to the Security Week Threat Hunting Summit. I am excited about our featured fireside chat with Steve Mancini. Steve is a head of information security at Gardent, Gardent Health. Uh, let me just give uh, the audience a little bit about Steve's background before we get into the formal introductions. Steve is head of information security at Gardent Health, a leading precision oncology company focused on helping conquer cancer globally through using uh, proprietary blood tests, fast data sets, and advanced analytics. Prior to Gardent Health, Steve was Chief Information Security Officer at Eclipsium, a former security company, and Deputy CISO at Silence, a company we should all recognize here. Before that, Steve managed community outreach, threat intelligence, APT response, and emerging threat analysis at Intel Corp, and has been a face and name in this industry for a very, very long time. Welcome to the Fireside Chat, Steve. Thank you for doing this. How are you? Oh, Ryan, I'm doing great. It's, it's good to talk with you. It's it's fascinating to have a threat hunting summit and bring you aboard because you have a fascinating career path that it's what, 15, 20 years yeah. doing community outreach. I mentioned threat intelligence, APT response at a very, very big company at scale. At Silence, you so you you know live through the birth of the EDR category uh, before moving into the CISO cheer. Can you talk a little bit? Let's start right there. Let's start at your current role. What does the head of information security at Gardent Health do? What do you guys do? And how do you describe your own personal mission at the organization? Sure. So, well, philosophically, uh, I like to think that my team's mission is to allow the really brilliant people that are trying to conquer cancer to innovate securely without friction and really just go fast, right? I mean, in a lot of people, we talk about time, but in our case, it really does matter. Right, people. Everybody I know has a story about someone with cancer affecting them, affecting their lives, or affecting them personally. Mm -hmm. And so our mission is very close to me because I lost my mother to cancer when I was a teen, and I understand what time means. And so I, I have a great team of folks. And practically speaking, what that means is we perform those security functions that most security teams do: product security, data protection, enterprise security, risk management, incident response. Right. But we're doing we're doing it for a company that's invested in, in people's lives. And so to me, that's a really big mission and a really, really, really important responsibility. You use the word speed. And every time I listen to that, every time I hear the word speed, it's the opposite of security. Right. Yeah. Uh, 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 how do you manage the importance of enabling the business to move at speed because of the real world consequences and keeping security with a, with, a, with a seat at the table? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And the thing is, I, I think that it comes down to making very quick decisions and enabling people to make decisions. So I've only been here six months and we're slowly transforming some of, some of that here, where for example, there's a really interesting method called uh, binary risk analysis. 10 questions and you can get to yourself to a, should I care? And so we're starting to incorporate that into things like a project risk calculator. We're talking about it with regards to third-party risk management. It comes down to asking the right 10 questions that pretty much anybody in the company can answer. And that becomes the, does my team need to look at it? Or are we willing to say, this is a risk we should just go, 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 go. And that's, that's kind of been my approach. It's also the idea of bringing the work to them, not making them come to us as much as possible, right? Uh, Jason Chan from Netflix did an amazing talk about this years ago, about how if you build a security program and you make engineers have to come to your your platforms and your systems, 
it's not going to happen. So that means integrating with their systems, right? Integrating with Jira, bringing the problems to their meetings. That's fast for me. It's the idea of we don't become a silo. They have to come to. We are going to them as quickly as we can and helping them make decisions and enabling them to make those decisions themselves. It's part of that decision-making and, and, and conversation also around enabling the business to move faster by enabling employees, like security not being the guys who say no, but security saying, yes, you can use this securely in this world of SaaS where everything SaaS sprawl is everywhere. Uh, uh, shadow IT is a problem for you guys. How do you, again, not be the department of no and enable people to use these things in a secure way when we know it's largely impossible to fully secure them? Like, how do you manage that risk management yeah. mindset? It, a, a lot of it comes around prioritization. Uh, again, with things like the, that, the binary risk analysis statement, if somebody comes to me and says, I want to use this really interesting app, I ask questions like, is PHI going there? Is PII going there? Is, is intellectual property going there? No. Is it having, you know, does it have connections into the network? There's a lot of questions you can ask. And when they say yes, it becomes about managing the yes. And in some cases, it's very much the, no, no, I need this. In other cases, they say, okay, now that you've made me think about that, I don't really need this app, right? Or right. like in our case, consolidating apps. So like for a while, there might be sprawl in which file sharing systems people use. If you can help them see that those other systems will meet the needs and you close down that, you close down your attack surfaces. You're able to better articulate the risk you need to do. You're putting your access controls in one place. It's about shared responsibility, I think, is the real key term to where we have to grow as an industry as far as managing risk. It's no longer me pushing the risk strictly on them and saying, you own this problem, or me you know, mandating a no. It's about managing a yes in a shared model. You mentioned um, uh, uh, the cancer research work being done at Garden Health. I imagine you're in a highly regulated space uh, yes. with a lot of heavy compliance needs. Does that help you as a security by security uh, a person building a program and building, like getting to a mature program. Does compliance help get you funding, get you uh, uh, top-down support, or uh, uh, and, and the, the addendum, the roundabout way of asking that question is, does the security exist without compliance and is compliance security? How do you like view all of this? Uh, it is it is two sides of a coin, and uh, honestly, compliance is is a double-edged sword. Uh, in some ways, it freezes things because if you are FDA regulated, you can't make certain changes in your environment without going through uh, additional qualifications. And so the quality team has to get involved and we have to resubmit things to FDA. So we're very mindful of building and architecting an environment where those kinds of assets have to be protected through compensating controls outside of what would be traditional change management. On the other hand, uh, with things like the emerging medical device security guidance that's coming out of the FDA, <clears throat> um, the teams that are responsible for development are suddenly being asked for how do you do security risk management? Did you do a threat model? Did you uh, do you have antivirus protection on the critical infrastructure? They're now coming to us with, wait a minute, the FDA is asking about this. And so right. we are now having a bigger place at the table with them and finding really enthusiastic partnership so far from my perspective. I, I have to caveat again, six months, so I could be living in a honeymoon period. Um, but the people I'm working with, they, they genuinely care because, you know, one of the things that one of our mission or values is put the patient first. And on a monthly basis, I do these introduction to enterprise security. Who's my team and what do we do and what that value means to us. Right. And I, as I always frame it is we are dealing with people during some of the worst times of their lives. 
And the last thing they need to hear is you have cancer, your cancer is progressing. Oh, by the way, we've also just lost all of your data. Right. And so I take that mission very, very seriously. And so I have really tight partnerships with all of those groups. So the FDA emerging view on this stuff is something we're working with in a, in a really good way. So I think compliance helps in a lot of ways from that perspective. But again, there's still some of those freeze points where we don't want to be changing things too dramatically. So I'm hoping the FDA can help change that in their in their guidances. And we provided some input on, on the FDA security guidance. So right. the future is, is it's, it's going to be a very interesting space in the next probably 12 months. And, you know, some of the criticism as well is that compliance gives you this false sense of security because you have those checkboxes. It means that you're secure when foundationally a lot of things have to be in place. And I want to ask you about, like, you, you know, you've had experience doing APT threat hunting, uh, APT landscape things, product security things, CISO things. Like when you think about building a security program from scratch, you say you're six months in, um, uh, and I know you've built a, a security program from scratch at other places. What are those like basic foundational things that can't, they can't be compromises around? And can you talk a little bit about to your peers about some things that get easily overlooked uh, uh, to, to your peril? So I think that <clears throat> obviously there's the, the core things like, is the data secure? Is the data protected? Is the access done right? Is identity management well prepared? Those things, I, I think that compliance speaks weakly to those, right? Uh, I think as an industry, we kind of, we're still wrestling with, I get questionnaires or in the past, I've gotten questionnaires where it's like, you must rotate your passwords. You must have this length of passwords. And I'm like, that's not what NIST is saying anymore. All right. I I'm using multi-factor. I'm using this and this we're, we're not keeping up in some of the places as an industry with what the new expectations are. And so I think that's one of the things that gets overlooked. Uh, I think one of the other things is when you look at things like 853 R5, uh, and this sounds like marketing, but I promise it's not. Um, they've expanded, right? It's no longer <clears throat> it's no longer this finite sort of system. If you look at all the the language, it's about hardware and firmware and software and your application layer and your operating system. And I know we're missing this, right? I know as an industry, we we aren't all on board with carrying all of those capabilities. That at some level we do the well, the vendor is responsible for the firmware. Terrific. When an APT comes in and pops you based on firmware, keep that in mind, right? And so okay. I think that that's where I think we need to figure out how we grow our best practices that we've used now for decades about operating systems and some applications into SaaS, into hardware, into firmware. And, and that's the guidance is there. But, you know, as usual, the guidance was released last year. There'll be an 18-month lag before somebody really seriously starts asking about it or auditors start knocking on doors about it. So I think that's the one thing we got to start thinking about. Steve, I, I always like talking to guys like you because after a 20-year career in cybersecurity, you've seen where we came from all those years ago when everything was being digitized to where we are today in 2022. It just feels like we have a supply chain security epidemic. We have a ransomware epidemic everywhere. When you look back over the years and all the, the, the money spent and investments made, are there things in security you expected that in 2022 would have been fixed by now when we're not really chasing these fires? And, you know, what are some of those, what are the, some of those disappointing things that you get a sense of why are we still chasing our tails with this specific thing? Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, you know, I don't know that I can point to any single thing that I ever felt could be fixed because of the, the, the nature of we fix it, they find a new way around it. 
But I think the thing that's been disappointing for most of the last 20 years is our our inability to stop reinventing the wheel as a security industry uh, and everybody having to kind of advocate like they've created the great new thing when really they've just rebuilt something that's already been done. Right. Uh, and, and not really building on universal taxonomies or for like technical integration. Uh, you know, things like the MITRE attack framework are fantastic, right? We're starting to figure out we can kind of talk to each other in a very, very common way. And as somebody who was part of the original sharing circles back in the Google Aurora days, we had nothing like that, right? We had, we were, we were talking different languages. It was like the Tower of Babel back then, uh, as opposed to where we are today with like, like that kind of thing. But still today, Every vendor needs to make up their own query language, right? Every new vendor who has something that does in your world has to have their own new way to tell you to go do the same searches instead of using universal query languages. And we still don't have basic logging formats, right? You still come up with technology and you're like integrate into Splunk and all of a sudden it's it's an entirely different line of gibberish. And you're like, why aren't you using formats that everybody else is using? And I just feel like there's so much work that every company has to put into adjusting to this, what I used to call the prom queen problem. Everybody wants to be the prom queen that we're all burning so much time on all of those configurations and getting things on a universal that we really just need to kind of get past the hubris of thinking that we have to do it again. It's kind of like security standards, right? And the jokes that we see on some of the Slack channels you and I share where, Oh yeah, another security standard. Terrific. Right. I, th I think that from my perspective, that's the most disappointing thing is that we can't get to that space of being, Settling on standards, settling on formats, and really just investing in making those better instead of having everybody reinvent the wheel. You had a really up-close view of the creation maturity of the EDR space uh, during your silence days. And EDR has kind of emerged as the standard for how to manage malware <clears throat> and malware infex infections in the enterprise. And I want to pick your brain on a mantra on your mindset. Do you uh, subscribe to this assume breach uh, philosophy where you assume breach and you figure out hunting at scale and you do all your logging and hunting at scale? Is that sustainable? Um, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that profession. Um, I don't like defeatist starting points. Uh, I, I believe more in an intelligence design rather than a... Let's start with the negative. I would rather start with an informed decision saying, who am I, where am I, who's after me, what are their techniques, zero in there, right? That's assume, the kind of breach is, assume breach is becoming a standard part of our mentality, though. I mean, Microsoft promulgates it as like their official stance is you should assume breach. I mean, yeah. the experts are telling us we should assume breach and go hunting. Is that a fair characterization of where we are? Um, I think so. I think it is from that perspective in that I think hunting is essential. Uh, especially if you're talking large-scale corporations, right? Mm -hmm. Smaller companies, you have a little bit more terrain that you can control. Large companies, you have sprawl that you can't. And I think that that becomes more of what the hunting translates into is if, if I look at my own experiences and experiences I know from others, a lot of hunting doesn't result in catching anything. But what it does is it finds the problems that a hunt that somebody else could have used against you. Right. And I think that that's where it shows a lot more value is in that sort of what's actually exploitable is what your threat hunters are doing. So is it a threat hunting at that point or is it red, it's a teaming? red team exercise? Exactly, yeah, right? it's, it's exactly where you get into that interesting gray space. But it's, it's but your, should, should your red teamers be equipped to find specific uh, threats versus just looking for entry points? 
I, I think so. I think that it's it's there's a good value to that. But I also I'm not a red team person. I'm a purple team person. I would much rather have a red team beating on stuff in conjunction with your blue team, so that you're testing the efficacy <clears throat> of your tools. Right? If you're you're testing the efficacy of your processes, you're you're finding those interesting one-offs. Uh, even right now, I have somebody who's spending part time in my small team doing threat hunting, and she's uncovering interesting things that. Did you know, and I, I'm almost to the point where I cringe when I when I see the the little Slack icon of this person is typing because I'm thinking it's either going to be something funny or it's going to be a question that's just going to ruin the rest of my day. And and but but at the end of the day, she caught it before they did, which to me is the win. That is that is the celebration you should have for every time your your assumed breach threat hunting approach finds something. That's a celebration in my book. Do you need to be a certain size and a certain maturity to be even equipped to go threat hunting? I mean, you mentioned at Intel and at scale, of course, you, you, you have your foundations in place. You have places that you can actually go hunting. In a lot of smaller organizations, even in SMBs without security teams with limited budgets and so on, not a lot of this logging is happening. Not a lot of this kind of, you know, these things that power the detection and response space. What, what help your CISOs? your CISO peers understand when does threat hunting become practical and really useful? I, I think it becomes practical when the, uh, what I, what I call the environmental opacity of your environment gets to the point where your confidence, where you are no longer confident to make assertions about your environment. Right now that may be small for some, it may be large for others, but when you as a CISO get hit with the question of are all of our systems using multi-factor and you can't say no, that's, that's when you need to start asking, because if you don't know, then you won't know if something's going on, and right. that's when you do it. Now, the other side of threat hunting, I think, though, is, is that a lot of the practitioners I talk to, if, if you're not in the full-on, I'd like to just write exploits and, and, and you know, get free passes to DEF CON uh, side of the culture, but if you're in that other side of defender side, I think that threat hunting as a, even if you just make it a side exercise that you give your smaller team some time to work on, you know, say, okay, 5% of your time, go hunt. You'll find ROI on that time that you give them, not only not only from the idea of what they uncover, but also honing their skills and giving them something that's somewhat more enjoyable than, say, having to tune Splunk logs. Right. So I think that as, as a leader, any size team, if you have people dedicated to security, even if they don't answer to you, if you take the time to build out that sort of a scenario, I think you're in great shape. The companies that created the EDR category are now, you know, IPO'd and become big, giant, mature companies. Uh, is this where, when you look back at, you know, the creation of CrowdStrike silence in the early days to where we are today, is this where you expected we would be? One, and I'm asking the question in a roundabout way to pick your brain on what happens next in the endpoint detection response space. I mean, Gartner started adding some letters to categories and so on, but where yeah. do you see innovation going in, 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 in not only anti-malware research, but helping big organizations cope with what, what is actually required? Yeah, it, well, it's interesting because, you know, from my perspective, uh, without trying to toot my own horn, I, I feel like I wrote my first EDR in 2006. Right back in the days of Code Red, before EDR was known at at Intel, we wrote an open source tool called Rapier, which allowed us to. Deploy, I remember that. Yeah, we deploy a remote. We would deploy a remote agent. We slurp a bunch of information that's all relevant to, uh, to system compromise, and we bring it back to a central server for analysis. It was really our way 
of being able to manage a massive company on a global scale, right? Because we didn't have security people all over the world. So we had to find a way to do it. And so when I look at what EDR tools do, today I kind of smile going, oh, wait, that almost looks like a slide deck we would present at first in 2008. Um, I think it's it, it makes sense to me where they've gone and what they've done because it's the natural evolution of you started out beating up a virus. Great. First thing you did was detection or like net, you know network intrusion detection or host intrusion detection became prevention. Why? Because you built the hooks. You got the information. You got the level of permission necessary on the box to do all of that sort of detective first generation stopping. And then you had your responders come in and go, I would use that exact same level of privilege to now heal the box or correct the box or learn more about what's going on. And so I feel like EDR has just been this natural evolution of okay, we helped them with this first problem. What else would they be doing? Oh, well, this would be the next thing they do. Okay, we've moved there. Okay, well, what's the next thing they do? Well, they would go after forensics. Hey, we can start collecting data for them from a forensic analysis. We can start collecting hashes. Well, I've already got you the enumeration off the process tree, so I can give you all that kind of data. Where it goes is, is a much more interesting question because I think that innovation in this whole DR, MDR, XDR, PDR, whatever the heck that X number mm -hmm. is or letter that they, they drop on us, it's got to be more. XDR is the latest thing, right? I mean, yeah, in, in, yeah. In, the one that's caught on is XDR, which is like, you know, extending it to network telemetry and kind of yeah. really well, building. Yeah. And I actually, I like that idea, right? Because I think that what we need to do in the innovation space is we need to be more about context and enriching the intelligence story of the mm -hmm. event and incident and not just whacking them all, right? Like when we started in this space, you just wanted to get rid of the virus. Well, now people want to know who put it there. <clears throat> they want to know what they access. They, they're terrified of live off the land or lateral movement, as they should be, right? Uh, the game has changed from the days of somebody dropping something into the world like a Code Red or a Nimda and it running wild versus, you know, having a dwell time of 365 days because they know what they're doing. And so right. this XDR thing to me makes sense because we need to get past the asset and start talking about the intrusion set and the intrusion story, right? And so I would love to see things like the XDR, EDR, MDR evolve to showing the responders the bigger picture. You know, not that just Alice's laptop was hit, but so was Bob and Carol's. And not only that they were hit, but give me a really solid macro timeline so I understand the bigger thing that's happening and not just the asset level situations, because that's what we're but that's what the industry has now set itself to expect from people, right? Because we have these phenomenal research papers from all of these companies that show these very, very thick timelines, and they show us the context of who the attribution is and everybody else. And then you have these poor small security teams who are being expected to write quality paper kind of, you know, IR reports of that level, but we don't give them the tools to do it, right? right? How, many, how many companies have people that are sitting in those, those threat sharing circles, or have access to, you know, the really solid people like Jags and company to help them figure out what is everything going on. They don't. Right. I feel like the EDR space has to grow there, right? You know, timelining is still one of these things. I don't see it done well yet, right? You know, give me, let me, let me go into your console, click 10 or 12 assets and say, are these all related, right? At Intel, we had this thing called a victim nexus, where whenever we would start looking at issues, we would always ask, we would take somebody and who would step back and look at the victims. Who were the individuals and what did they have in common rather than just right. look at the assets, right? And so I've never seen anybody put out a victim nexus, for example. So I see there's a lot there to do, but it has to be more about using kind of an intelligence-driven approach to showing us the bigger picture and not just whacking them all. 
Are you including attribution in here as well? Are you a big fan of threat intelligence, attribution, knowing who the adversary is? It helps to defend your organization or you feel like that's a lot of wasted effort? I am a, I'm an advocate of threat intelligence and attribution if it can be used in your postmortems and your learnings right. and knowing where it is, right? So for example, when we get into this space, if you were to go look at the pandas and koalas and kalimas and butterflies and whatever else we got out there, uh, if you're defending your company, you can't, you can't keep up on everybody, right? But if somebody tells you here are the five or 10 intrusion set groups that do go after your organization for you to be able to pivot and say, what are the techniques they use? How am I lined up against those techniques? That becomes valuable. That's the value. That's the value of where that stuff comes into. Now, I, I think that there's also sort of a psychological aspect to this that, you know, I, I used to describe it as you're standing in the middle of a room with a light bulb flash and somebody punches you in the face. What's the first thing you want to know? Who the heck just punched me? Right. I feel like we have that, but that's, that's, that's not a business priority. That's a psychological need to want to know who's hitting you. But I think much more about understanding the intrusion set so you know what they're going to do or if they change in the future, knowing that they may come back. Right. Uh, I have personal experience with they come back. I know this is this is happens because I've seen that literally happen. And so knowing how they're changing their techniques helps you better prepare. You mentioned Intel. You, you mentioned Eclipsium. How worried are you? about the layer below the operating system and malicious activity happening in that firmware hardware space. Should we be worried, based on your visibility, should be, we be worried that there's a lot of malicious activity happening there that we don't know about or we don't even have the capability to see? Or is this a lot of hype that we could kind of like, you know, put this in a corner and focus on phishing, focus on ransomware, focus on the everyday things today and not worry about those? Like where, where should we strip away the hype from the real? Um, oh man, see, now you put me on the spot because I'm, 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 you know, I, I have an investment in Clipsium, so, you know. No, it's fair. I mean, it, it's, I mean, realistically, help the audience understand how you view security to build okay, the so system and the former layer. It's totally fair. So my, my own knowledge base, which means things I've personally experienced or things I've learned about through sharing circles. Mm -hmm. Firmware is not new. Firmware has been compromised for at least a decade. It's, well, it's there, been, only been, there only been five or six in the wild live malicious things found, right? So we're, we know that they're, they're, they're actively operating at that layer for a long time, for decades. We've barely yep. found a handful of things. Yep. What does this say? Well, what it says is if you first off ask your vendors, do you detect at the firmware layer? The answer is no, right? So you don't, I, I, I do not want to fall into the FUD space of saying you don't know. But the reality mm -hmm. is... If you're asking me what we should do is I think we need to instrument better ability to understand if there's a problem there. Kind of, you know, it's kind of like a carbon monoxide detector, right? You, you don't want to know you have a problem when everything around you starts dropping off. You, we need to we need instrument and we need to dedicate at that layer, right-sizing it to let's start knowing if there's a problem there. Because right. like I said, the one that I the one that I know about, I don't think many people know about. And of course, I can't talk about it. Uh, but it very much was a, a firmware update pop. They own the box three seconds later, right? Kind of thing. Right. And so that for me, it, that's part of why I actually joined Eclipsium at the time when, when Yuri and Alex came talking to me, they were like, you know about this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And they're like, okay, so do you think it's a real problem? And I'm like, I do. I don't think it's prolific, right? Again, I think this is a very, very small subset of very high end actors, right? Um, 
But if you look in the recent space of what's happened recently, I, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I understand the skepticism, right? Shadowhammer, congratulations. It happened a couple of years ago and there were only 600 devices in the entire world that got hit by it. Right. Um, I think what we're going to see though, is we have to measure against the scale of when the other attack surfaces become harder and harder to use for persistence. Right. Firmware is where it's going to go. Right. As long as I can keep owning a box at, at the operating system layer, I'm not going to use my super rich tools for the average crimeware. Right. So you're not going to see your, your crimeware groups probably drop here too quickly, in my opinion. But once those layers get harder and harder to defend, what are they going to do? They're going to go deeper. Or if and they, you expect if, to see the apex predators go deeper and use that to maintain persistence, even if you do your cleanup at the top of the operating system, you just kind of pop your malware back in there. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, we just, I just have a few minutes, but I can't let you go without asking you this very, very important question. Okay. Why would anyone want to be a CISO? When you're, you know, everything you listen to, it seems like the role is set up as the fall guy. So the question is, why would anyone want to be a CISO as like the, the pinnacle of a career path? One. And two, how do you wake up and come to work in the morning energized to like really inspire your team to secure the organization amidst what seems to be a lot of noise and chaos around how bad things are. Help your peers, you know, get a more optimistic outlook on things. So I cannot speak to why you would want to be a CISO at a large company. Right. I can't, I just, I, I, you know, I've had this conversation with a friend who, who was talking about wanting to move into the banking industry. And I'm like, that's a suit every day. And as you can tell from the picture, I'm not wearing a suit. Um, I, I think though at the right size company, being a CISO can keep you practical in your technology space, if that's what you came from, but it lets you chart the course right? It lets you decide what the world looks like. One of my, one of my best, a, a good friend of mine who worked for me, uh, his name is Justin Mitzenberg, once said, build the environment that you want to hunt in, right? And uh, he was, he, he is phenomenal in that space. And if you're not the CISO, you don't get to build the environment. And so the strategist in me, the architect in me, uh, We'll, we'll do the business side to be able to say, this is what my environment's going to look like. And uh, if, I can, if I can get to that point where I just exceed attacker expectations, I'm winning, right? I mean, yeah, there's always going to be somebody who makes a mistake and leaves a box with a default password, and you have to hopefully catch it before the bad guys. But what energizes me in the morning or what gets me to get my folks to that point is to, one, Come to work with the right attitude. Come to work with a healthy attitude that you will not be right 100% of the time. All you're trying to do is make it harder and harder for the attackers every day, whether that's through a technology perspective, through a process that you implement, or, you know, in my case, trying to turn the employees into the army of defenders, right? I know a lot of folks don't believe in that, but I strongly believe enabling your employees to ask questions is, is incredibly important. And so it's not just my team, but it's my whole organization that I feel like you have to get on board with that idea. Um, it's, it's about celebrating these things, right? Uh, one of the things that I've told my team, for example, is when we find a flaw in the environment, if we find it before the bad guys, that's a celebrated discovery. That's not a, oh God, the world's, a, you know, somebody's a horrible person because they didn't. Bad. No, we should celebrate every one of those things we catch beforehand because if we shore it up, we exceed expectations. And so I can't stop them from coming. 
the best I can do is make it really painful for them to try to get there. Thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate the, appreciate the insight. Thank you for coming and sharing your expertise with us. Always a pleasure talking to you, Ryan. Thanks a lot. It's been a blast. And enjoy the rest of the conference, folks. This session will be available on demand, uh, so you can check back uh, uh, on the conference website to view this. Again, thank you very much, Steve. Thanks. 